0: Indeed, I'm Alec Hogg coming to you from our main studio here in Johannesburg. With me is Stuart Lohman and uh, in our virtual studio from Cape Town, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart. Well, really good to have you with us this Tuesday evening. And picking up on the day, we've got some really cracking stories coming up for you. Uh, In just a little while, you'll hear a lot more about the Issues that have been going on in Guinea. And there, the, uh, well, I suppose you can't really call him president for life, but he's in his 80s, uh, 81 or 83, depending on which date of birth you want to look at. His name is Alpha Conde. He's been the president of Guinea since nine, uh, 2010, uh, where he was elected in a supposedly free and fair election. Subsequent to that, there have been a number of elections which some say aren't free and fair, but uh, he was deposed a couple of days ago uh, and there's now a military junta that is ruling the country. We'll have more on that story from the Financial Times of London. Why is it relevant? Well, it's Africa, uh, which is our continent, and also it's to do with bauxite, which is, uh, Guinea has a, a, a is a large supplier of bauxite, which is used in aluminium. So the aluminium price has gone up to a 10-year high. So that's from our partners at the Financial Times in London. After them, uh, we have Pit yun Talking about Steinhoff, and uh, well, he, he's got some pretty choice things to say about uh, the Techie Town guys. We spoke last night with Bernard Mostet from Techie Town, who are putting trying to put Steinhoff into liquidation. And the news yesterday that Techie Town's application to put Steinhoff into liquidation um, seems to have been very well supported by the courts, certainly at this point, I saw the Steinhof share price drop 20%. Uh, if Stainoff goes into liquidation, or oh, Pitt will tell us all about that a little later, what it means for Stainoff shareholders, but it's not good news. Also coming up is a uh, a clip from our business conference, uh, which was held last week. Nadia, you were you you put that together. It's uh, Musi Maimani's uh, insights into Zambia.
1: It's incredible. He's. Just Yeah, he's got a great presence about him and his personal experience with HH is it just added such value. So I had a, a lot of fun putting it together. It's really, really good content.
0: HH Ichelima, who we spoke with uh, last night um, or spoke about last night with Helen Ziller, uh, the new president of Zambia. It's like the DA has deposed and in a landslide uh, the ANC version in Zambia and i guess that's getting everybody quite excited here in south africa it's a fascinating um discourse which we've taken from the conference and uh, we really take you into the room there and then we'll be hearing about something that we should have run yesterday but we had a late breaking story uh with helen zilla uh, so As a consequence, we were going to be running the Rian Duplessis interview yesterday about Pumalela and the Public Protector basically putting that company into business rescue through a decision which she's now rescinded. Of course, it's too late, uh, but that's another interview coming up. So lots that is uh, going to be keeping us occupied over the next few um, minutes. Well, actually. The power hour, it's a whole hour, isn't it? Stuart, before we get any further, or I get any further tongue-tied, uh, would you like to bring us up to date with what's been going on uh, on the com website and what's being read?
2: Uh, your interview with Helen from last night, Alec, the piece you know, where she talks about the DEA and EFF being the only real alternatives for voters, that's um, the most popular. Behind that's an interesting piece on tax avoidance um, from our, uh, one of our partners, overbig Asset Management. And then the piece by Dr Duncan Carmichael, where he looks at the pros and cons of enforced vaccines, is also doing very well on the site.
0: No idea that uh, uh, Dr Carmichael. You did interview him uh, on his last interview. He's he, uh, on his last article rather that he wrote for Biz News. He's an interesting um, contributor, g- given that he's a GP and very balanced mm-hmm. too.
1: Very balanced in like you know, in respect of a subject where you don't find that much. And so I'm gonna interview him tomorrow regarding this latest article. So that should be interesting.
0: Indeed. What's been going on with the Business TV channel on YouTube?
1: So the top video over the last twenty-four hours is your live stream interview with Tacky Towns Bernard in which he gave an update on the Steinhoff settlement. And another live stream video that's doing really well is the interview with Eugene Boyson, CEO of 4AX. So he discusses the launch of the Cape Town Stock Exchange. And then the third video that's doing really well is actually a summary of your interview with Emil Stipp from a few weeks ago, where he discusses herd immunity and the fact that it's something that we should all forget now.
0: It is interesting uh, how the scientists are moving from one way or one view to another. I guess that's the one thing that we've learned from COVID nineteen is that scientists don't always talk with the same voice. Stuart, uh, as far as the podcasts are concerned, what are the uh, best listened to at the moment?
2: Very similar theme there, Alec. Uh, Helen Ziller is the most listened to podcast. Uh, behind that, the interview you did with Bernard Moestert, and then last night's Business Power Hour uh, filling the top three.
3: Bright Rock believes that with
4: every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Okay, so let's catch up with Nadia now on today's news headlines. Nadia?
1: Opposition political parties have threatened legal action over the Electoral Commission of SA's decision to reopen the candidate registration process, saying that the move smacked of political bias and was aimed at benefiting the embattled ANC. The DA and the IFP said on Monday that they had briefed their lawyers to explore all available legal avenues to oppose the IEC's decision, which came days after the Constitutional Court ruled that the local government election must take place between October 27th and November 1st, and that the voters' role should be reopened. IFP spokesperson Mukalelo Nkloenga said the reopening of the candidate registration process clearly shows that the IEC are operating with political bias. The interpretation of the judgment by the IEC is not legal, but political. South Africa will seek to increase the funding provided to developing nations for their energy transition as one of its goals at climate talks in Glasgow in November. The South African delegation's expectations for the so-called COP26 conference include a start of the process for determining a new and more ambitious goal for long-term finance, increasing beyond the $100 billion per year from 2025, the Department of Forestry, Fisheries and the Environment said in a presentation to lawmakers. Zimbabwe's government has ordered state employees who are unwilling to be vaccinated to resign to reduce the risk of them spreading the virus to others. If you are now working for us, we are now saying get vaccinated, Justice Minister Ziambi Ziambi said in an interview on Tuesday. You can enjoy your rights in the streets or at your home. We are not forcing you to be vaccinated, Ziambi said. But if you are a government employee for the protection of others and the people you are serving, get vaccinated. But if you want to enjoy your rights, which are in the Constitution, you can resign.
0: Wow, that's quite a development. One wonders if they'd get away with that in South Africa. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, that people who are vaccinated can still spread the virus. So, mm. But the Zimbabwean government is working on this assumption that you can't. So you get vaccinated, then you can't.
1: Yeah, that's you know, actually something that's, sick. yeah, which you can, and that's explored in Duncan Carmichael's article.
0: Well, we know, don't we? Um from hmm. uh we, we received yeah. the virus yeah. from somebody who was already vaccinated. When I say we, it's um a number of us at Biz News. Of course, uh, Stuart, you didn't get the well, you didn't get any symptoms anyway, although I'm sure you probably have have had COVID. Yeah, I've been told
2: to have had the test to see if I have ali, but I've never gotten for it. I don't want to waste seven hundred and fifty Rand, I think it is, to find out. But I haven't had any real symptoms and I got the vaccination. I still haven't had any symptoms, so I'm not sure probably stand in a place where a lot of people do and we just don't comment too much because we're not sure what's going on.
0: <laughs> I well, And that's why what we have to do is just give both sides of the story at exactly. every opportunity. And that's what we do at Business. News. And unfortunately, some people think because you give the other side of the story that uh, you believe that. I'm not, exactly. I'm not clever enough. I don't know if you asked you, but uh, to actually know <laughs> exactly what the right side is now because it seems as though there's no one size fits all when it comes to uh, covid Be vaccinated it's likely you're not going to end up in hospital. That's why I'm very pleased that I was vaccinated before I got COVID and I got through it quite easily. However, it didn't mean that uh, I, I didn't have to isolate because even if you are vaccinated, you... You can pass it on because we got it from someone who was vaccinated before. We know that for a fact. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, let's find out what went on in the markets from our vaccinated Justin Roe Roberts.
5: Only one jab, Alec. Second one on the 2nd of October, but looking forward to it. In the markets today, the JSC All Share Index was up at 66,500. In the currency markets, the Rand was largely flat against all the major currencies. To 14 Rand 31 cents to the dollar, 19 Rand 74 cents to the pound and 16 rand 97 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,813 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is down at $72 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency Bitcoin will cost you around three quarters of a million rand. South Africa's recovery from a coronavirus-induced contraction quickened in the second quarter as restrictions to contain the pandemic were eased. Gross domestic product expanded 1.2% in the three months through June from a revised 1% in the previous quarter, Statistics South Africa said Tuesday in the capital, Pretoria. The median estimate of four economists in a Bloomberg survey was for growth of 0.9%. The agency no longer reports an annualized growth rate and now uses 2015 as the base year for the data. The economy grew 19.3% from a year earlier, the first year-on-year increase in five quarters. That's up from a low base in the second quarter of 2020, when a strict COVID-19 lockdown shuttered most activity, and compares with the 17.8% median estimate of 14 economists in a separate Bloomberg survey. ShopRite said customers' numbers dropped, but shoppers bought more per visit, as Africa's largest supermarket chain continues to grapple with the coronavirus pandemic. Operating profit rose 19% to 9.7 billion rand in the year through July 4. The Cape Town-based company said in a statement on Tuesday. Visits declined 3.8%, while the average basket spend climbed 13.6%. Shoprite, which puts its main focus on the South African market while scaling back elsewhere on the continent, posted strong second-half sales growth as it opens more stores. The group exited Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, and Madagascar in recent months either selling or discontinuing operation in those countries. The shares were slightly up on the local bars today.
0: Uh, Just to confirm, they did not exit Zambia.
5: They did not exit Zambia, but they are looking to scale back their African operations and focus more on the South African market. We've seen now with the acquisition of Cambridge, Rhino and Cash and Carry, they're almost going to have a third of the market share of the 600 billion rand retail market in South Africa.
0: And you know what was interesting uh, at the business conference, uh, Stuart, was how Gigi Alcock uh, said that the turnover of sparza shops was 150 billion rand a year, which, Justin, is in line with ShopRite. So if you were to take all of ShopRite's turnover and then all of the Spaza shops, you'd have uh, two equal-sized
5: businesses. I think that just goes to show the size of the informal economy. And there's this whole big argument now when the numbers came out regarding our GDP numbers and the actual numbers with the informal economy, that the economy is actually 10 to 15% greater, um, which is very interesting in itself.
3: This market report
4: was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes
6: as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, September 7th. this is your FT News Briefing. Boris Johnson is set to announce a major tax rise today. And the military coup in Guinea has people worried about aluminum production. Plus, many developing countries are finding cryptocurrencies appealing. And the biggest experiment starts today in El Salvador.
7: This is not some Mickey Mouse country, all right? It's a small country in Central America. It looks a bit bizarre that it's doing this, but... This is a test case.
6: I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Today, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will announce a tax rise of more than £10 billion. The money will go toward emergency support for the NHS. It'll also go to gradually reforming the UK's social care sector but the ft's political editor george parker says members of johnson's own party are pretty unhappy with the idea of a tax rise
8: the conservatives made a promise to the electorate in 2019 that there would be no increases in taxation or the main rates of taxation um, that will be a blatant manifesto breach second thing is and they like to think of themselves as a party of low taxation although the record shows that at the moment the tax burden in the uk is the highest it's been since the late 1960s so is quickly shedding that reputation. And the third thing is the way this tax rise will operate. Basically, it's a tax paid by all people on their income, but it doesn't include payments for rental income or dividends. And also, it doesn't apply to people aged over 66. So that means that the people most likely to receive social care in the short term, at least, are not going to be paying anything more either. And what's the purpose of this? Well, the government's going to introduce a cap on the amount that anyone can pay in their lifetime for social care of about £80,000. Now, the objective of that is to stop people having to sell their house if they have to face catastrophic costs for social care. But you can see the criticism of that policy that you're asking people on low incomes who are probably renting a property being asked to pay more so that people who live in houses worth a million pounds can pass their home on to their privileged children. It doesn't look equitable. It's not equitable. But Boris Johnson, nevertheless, is going to plow ahead with it because he thinks it's unavoidable. that tax, Some sort of taxes are going to have to rise if they're going to meet this extra cost.
6: George Parker is the FT's political editor. Guinea's military said they had overthrown the country's 83-year-old president, Alpha Conde, on Sunday. He was elected in 2010 and won a controversial third term last year. Guinea is the world's second biggest producer of the raw material bauxite, which is needed to make aluminum. And the news of the coup set the price of aluminum on Monday to its highest level in a decade. FT's West Africa correspondent, Neil Munchi, said the leaders of the coup are trying to calm the fears of industry leaders around the world.
3: On Monday, the head of the junta tried to sort of reassure the global mining industry by saying that the ports would still be open for export, that the mining companies in the country should continue to operate as usual and the airports would be open again. Uh, and he said all of this was in order to ensure the continuity of production, which kind of underscores the importance
6: of the mining industry to the economy in Guinea. Yeah, Neil, can you explain a little more about the significance the mining industry has in Guinea? So mining
3: and, you know, bauxite production in particular makes up the bulk of the country's exports, and it's incredibly important to the country's economy, but at the same time, It has, over the years, been the subject of allegations of gross corruption involving major mining companies from all over the world and politicians. And it it hasn't done much at all for the people of Guinea, who remain some of the poorest people in the world. Neil
6: Mochi is the FT's West Africa correspondent. Twenty years after it adopted the U.S. dollar as its national currency, El Salvador will today become the first country in the world to make Bitcoin legal tender. Those in favor of the move say it will cut the fees Salvadorans pay to send home remittances, which represent one quarter of the country's GDP. Critics say the rushed plan could cost poorer Salvadorans dearly when the price falls and provide a shield for money launderers. But whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, it's happening. And the FT's Jonathan Wheatley says crypto isn't just popular in El Salvador. It's really gaining traction in a lot of developing countries.
7: What we've seen is that acceptance becomes adoption becomes quite high in places where people don't necessarily trust the national currency. So a currency has to act as a means of exchange, as a store of value, and as a unit of account. And in all those aspects of use, emerging market currencies are often flawed. You often get runaway inflation or unpredictable inflation that can go up and down quite quickly. You get very sharp and unpredictable movements in the exchange rate. It can be very hard to do things that you know some of us in advanced economies find quite easy to do. If I drive across Europe and get a parking ticket in Italy, when I get home, I can pay it by bank transfer out of my checking account. Um, That kind of thing, if you're in Lagos, is extremely complex. And Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies make that an awful lot easier. And although, obviously, during the time that it takes to enact a transaction, the value can move very sharply and cryptocurrencies do move very sharply in value. Nevertheless, when you're used to your own national currency moving extremely sharply in value, then that kind of risk becomes much
6: more acceptable. Now, Jonathan, the way that I understand it is that This isn't necessarily new. Emerging markets have this tendency to adopt new technology early. Like, cryptocurrency isn't the first time we've seen this kind of transition in developing countries, right?
7: No, absolutely, and in fact, you know, when a new technology comes along, they quite often tend to adopt it quickly because it allows them to leapfrog over the absence of a preceding technology. The example that we give is M-Pesa in Kenya, which is now in several other countries, which basically allowed people without bank accounts to use their mobile telephone accounts as bank accounts. Basically, the, the telecom operator was operating as a bank, and that allowed the unbanked to become banked without bank accounts and. What some people are hoping is that not just with cryptocurrencies, but with the distributed ledger technology and the blockchains, that's one of the, one of the applications of that that lies behind crypto that other things might come along that would allow that kind of leapfrogging. And the classic example would be land registry or property registry in general. In a great many developing countries, there is almost no land registry at all, and certainly very precarious land registry. So people don't have rights over their own property. And crucially, they're not able to leverage that right into lending for investment and growth. So you've got a whole pile of dead capital in a lot of emerging economies that could be unlocked by functioning land registry or property registry more broadly. And the hope is, among some, that distributed ledger technology, blockchain, would allow that to happen.
6: Jonathan, just going back to El Salvador for a bit, you know, what are other countries looking at when they watch this experiment unfold?
7: Well, um, one point that we, that we reported in our, in our big read was that this is not some Mickey Mouse country. All right. It's a small country in Central America. It looks a bit bizarre that it's doing this, but it's, it's a democratically elected government. It's not under sanctions from anybody it's a member of the of the imf it's inserted in the international financial system and you know one commenter that we interviewed made the point that this is a test case i mean we will see whether or not it's possible for a country to accept cryptocurrencies and if it works or not will be very very
6: interesting either way jonathan wheatley is the ft's emerging markets correspondent thanks jonathan
7: you're very welcome My pleasure.
6: You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
0: Pit Fulion is with us uh, back home in Cape Town after a wonderful week in the Drakensberg last week. Pit, lovely to have you at the Biz News Conference, and the feedback we've got from your presentation, as always, was excellent. Uh today though we we're talking to a broader, wider audience. and one of the things that is very much in the news right now for the business community is what happened in court yesterday where the application by Bernard Mostert and the Town guys, well, the pre-liquidation hearing for Steinhoff went very much in their favour. and now the liquidation hearing begins on Thursday. If Steinhoff were to be liquidated, in other words, if the Techie Town guys were successful, would that not be a bad thing for the Steinhoff shares?
9: It would. And I think you saw the reaction yesterday with Steinhoff declining by 20% from, I don't know, 380 to under three at one point. Um, so, yeah, if you look at Steinhoff right now, um, it has a whole bunch of pretty good assets, uh, but it has lots of debt against it and lots of potential legal Claims against those assets and the equity portion of the capital structure is a very thin sliver that's left So if you get another claim into that capital structure It will reduce that equity portion of the capital structure even further and because it's such a thin sliver um, any any significant amount there will will Could make it go away completely so that equity holders have nothing left and the problem is this new claim that's come in by the Techie town people um, is such that it, uh, you know, if it forces the business into liquidation, you generally don't get good prices for the assets uh, when you sell them, because that's what you have to do. You have to sell the assets and satisfy all the creditors and anybody else out there. Uh, and generally, in such a fire sale event, you don't get good prices, which reduces the value of the equity even more. So, you know, where the value of the equity in the past was fairly uncertain and could vary in quite a wide range. Uh, With this new additional claim looking like it might even be successful, um, equity holders might end up with nothing. That's possible.
0: And you can't blame the Techie Town guys. They sold a good business into Steinhoff, and suddenly their good business was worthless because of the fraud that went through, misrepresentation, they They, claim. They want value back.
9: I disagree with that. I think you can blame them because they had the choice to take cash or paper when they did the deal, and at that time, they were greedy enough to want to take the sign of paper, and they took it. And as with anything in life, it's always caveat emptor. They took the paper. You know, um, lots of people were buying the shares at that point, uh, and now everybody's saying, oh, but we were fooled and this, that, and other. But, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that view, at all.
0: Were they able to take cash? I was un- under the impression they didn't have that option.
9: When you negotiate a transaction, you can I guess you can negotiate cash, but they were offered the, the problem is they were offered such a high price for their business, but it was on the proviso that it was in shares. So they were greedy enough to take that very high price for the business. They were by far overpaid. I remember when that transaction was done, everybody said it's crazy the sort of price they're being paid for Techie Town. Um, and I guess part of the negotiators was we'll pay you this very high price, but then you have to take shares. They could have maybe accepted a lower price and taken cash. You know, that, that could have been an alternative. Uh, who knows what went on the negotiating tables. But I don't think the blame is 100% on the Steinhoff side of things.
0: So you are not, obviously, uh, from what you've just said now, sympathetic towards the view from Techie Town that Steinhoff needs to be liquidated.
9: Uh, no, I'm not sympathetic at all. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's just an opportunistic attempt to get some value out of the carcass. of Steinhoff, if you can put it that way. By somebody who feels they were hard done by, I, I don't feel very sorry for them at all. Um, but I can understand the strategy they're employing. I mean, if I was them, I'd probably do try to do the same thing. Uh, but I don't have very much sympathy for them.
0: But but surely they can, if they were given a uh, a mis if they were misrepresented. Uh, by the people who are buying their business, and they've now discovered, and everybody knows it was misrepresentation. They should at least have the option of getting their business back and cancelling that contract. Because if a contract is is misrepresented from the one party, then it's it's uh, the contract can be null and void.
9: Yeah, I guess so. You can you can argue that in legal terms, but uh, you know the the people who sold their business to Starner were were very close to the management of Starner. I mean, these people ran in the same sort of circles they they knew each other very well and um so so again uh anytime you do a transaction uh, it's a risky proposition. You pay a price and you get an asset and you don't really know what's an asset until you take ownership and do, you know you you start um, you, you start uh, uh examining what you've actually bought It's hard to tell up front so there's always risk with any acquisition, just like when you buy a house and you find out there's something wrong with the house, um, you know, it's your house now. It's your problem.
0: But if somebody cheats you on the house, if somebody actually builds a paper wall and tells you that it's a, a brick wall or puts pla- paper over, a, 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 over that wall and you discover it afterwards, you've got a claim against them because they've been sure. dishonest.
9: Yes, but the other side of the argument is the price they were offered for down was so high that they probably should have smelled the rat.
0: Hmm.
9: So that's why well, I don't have much sympathy.
0: Well, it all begins on Thursday. If they are successful and if Steinhoff is liquidated, what happens then to the shareholders or people who own Steinhoff shares?
9: Well, if Steinhoff is liquidated, I I guess there's a good chance. And, you know, these numbers are so uncertain because you you just don't know how they're going to pan out because the other claims still need to be settled, finalized as well. Um, So there's a whole bunch of legal claims against the business. On top of that, there's a liquidation proceeding. On top of that, there's debt. On top of that, in a liquidation proceeding, assets are sold uh, almost in a fire sale basis, so you get less value for the assets. So there's a lot of moving parts here, and it's hard to say that equity is worth this or that. Um, It's not something I'd want to um, put any money into at this point in time.
0: So would you own those PREF shares and these of Ordinary shares going into all of this confusion.
9: So the preference shares are senior in the capital structure to ordinary equity. Um, so I think they they're safe. Um, equity, no, I wouldn't want to own that now. Even even in the bundle of twigs, as I as I call it, um, because I I think it you know the chance of it going to naught is actually quite high at this point.
0: And, and raised uh, due to yesterday's court judgment.
9: Yeah, the, 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 the zero outcome was always there. Um, but I think in an orderly transaction where creditors are satisfied, where claimants are satisfied, and everything happens on an on a orderly time frame, um, I think the equity others could have received something and, and something of value. Um, in a liquidation proceeding, I think all bets off.
0: Hmm. Okay, so if you owned Steinhoff shares today, uh, you would probably be looking to sell them.
9: If I had owned, uh, without giving any advice to shareholders as what to what to do with their shares, uh, I don't own Steinfeld shares at the moment. Um, but if I had owned them today, I'd probably think hard about selling them. Yes.
0: Very high risk. Pete, something else that's been interesting in a South African context has been the discussions over NASPAS. Now, we've had conversations on this score. Uh, group, a group of asset managers some time back Uh, felt that Naspers management were not doing a good job and that they should unbundle the 10-cent shares. You don't own Naspers shares, so you wouldn't have been part of that conversation. But your firm, Counterpoint, were they part of that conversation?
9: Uh, Yes, Counterpoint was part of the conversation, and Counterpoint, as a firm, um, owns Naspers shares in some of the funds, not the ones I manage, but in some of the other funds. And Counterpoint signed the letter um, requesting a, a revision of the transaction.
0: And I'm asking this because Nyspace has now just concluded another big transaction uh, of 70 billion rand. Uh, Bob van Dijk reckons it's fantastic and uh, certainly in business day this morning he has the ear of somebody who's equally uh, enthusiastic about the the transaction. How are you seeing
6: it?
9: Well, I think anybody who does a transaction always thinks it's fantastic. I think 100% of transactions are done are thought to be fantastic by both the selling and the acquiring part. I mean, that's just our, that's just human nature. Um, I think time will tell. I think acquisitions, uh, making acquisitions to grow your business is a highly risky strategy. As we discussed at Off, you never really know what you get. And buyers tend to overpay in their acquisitions. I mean, that's just uh, how life works. Buyers tend to overpay. Um, very few acquisitions are underpriced because the seller knows the business a lot better than the buyer. And on top of that, if you look at this, this fintech-type business, payments-type business that NASPA has bought, they've paid higher than average multiples uh, as uh, enterprise-valued sales, however you want to express it. They've paid higher than average multiples for this sort of business. Granted, there's India, big population, big market, low market share. So there's all those sort of tailwinds you might build into it. But that thing has to do really, really well over the next five to ten years to justify the purchase price. So, so I, I think it's risky. It's, um, uh, and, uh, you know, having said that, I think the seller knows the asset better than the buyer and a minority shareholder knows even less about it. So it's very hard to sit here and criticize and say it's wrong, this wrong, that's wrong. I mean, these are, these are good business people and they think they're doing a good uh, transaction. So let's see how it works out. Um, but it's not something I would uh, pay a premium for to take part in.
0: And your colleagues at CounterPoint who do own the shares, uh, what's the morning meeting discussion on that acquisition? Look,
9: we 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 have differences of opinion on that. But having said that, uh, a lot of the funds that own NASPASS in the CounterPoint stable and in most other houses are – Benchmark orientated, so they have to stay fairly close to the benchmark. And Nasdaq nice is a big part of the benchmark, so a lot of people who own Nasdaq nice actually don't like the share, but they have to own it because it's such a big part of the benchmark. So there's always that dilemma. Uh, fortunately, um, in managing a value fund, the Counterpoint Value Fund, I disregard the benchmark completely, and I just try and buy cheap shares. So I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not subject to that dilemma, which is a fortunate position to be in.
0: Pete, just to close off with, uh, you did give us some uh, insights into your bundle, your bundle of sticks, some more sticks that we could add to the bundle. Some, like Avenge, have been spectacularly successful. Uh, not all of them will be, as you, you continue to wave uh, a flag about. Which ones uh, can you tell us publicly uh, are worth looking at to include in the bundle? I remember Borwin Properties. Baldwin
9: Properties, uh... Properties I, I think it's worth looking at. They, they've just done a, a, a BEE transaction, which, like most BEE transactions, is value dilutive. But that is the reality of doing business in Africa. You have to do it. And especially in the, in, in the type of business they're in, um, they have to work very closely with the public sector in terms of roads infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, to get uh, a residential development up and running. So they have to have that, they, you know. Um, and whichever way you structure these BE deals, it is dilutive to the shareholders. But again, as I said, that's that's a cost of doing business. And I think that's more than discounted in the current and share price. Um, so definitely want to look at. Another one that reported recently, master drilling, um, generating very good cash flows on very low multiples. And if you read the Wilson Bailey Homes, Avenge, and Marion Roberts results, um, I think there's construction activity, more and more construction activity happening, general construction and in the mining sector. If you read the mining companies, the Impalas of the world, Amplats of the world, uh, if you read their results, they are spending more, not a lot more, but they are starting to spend more on, on expanding their productive capacity and investing in expanding their productive capacity, which is good for those sort of build, uh, companies like uh, like. The, the drilling companies and the and the mining companies so I, I think there's there's upside there potential upside there but it is a cyclical environment and there's no guarantee about
4: how does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables giving us technology that connects us hospitals that care for us and the tools that shape our cities And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply.
10: You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour
0: brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, as I mentioned with Pitt, last week we were in the Drakensberg at the Champagne Sports Resort for the second Business Investment Conference and this one was opened by Muzi Maimani. He's been doing a lot of work behind the scenes, building up the One South Africa movement ahead of the municipal elections that are now going to be held at the end of next month. So uh, lots of excitement going on there, including in his work was to help local communities put forward the most suitable independent candidates in 350 of the constituencies that are going to be voted on in the municipal elections. Muzi at the conference kicked off with a amazing story that shows that political change can and does happen. He used the experience of Zambia, and you'll hear the major parts of his speech that are focused on that remarkable change that has happened in just four years. Also, in this clip, you'll hear the question that I posed to him which gives you hope that change is not only possible in South Africa but probable.
4: I speak to you at a time with almost fairly mixed emotions about South Africa we are all in some ways optimistic about the continent but equally so worried about tomorrow and the best way to put it out is that in this in 2017, I boarded a flight to Lusaka. And as I got onto the plane, like any other trip, we had two guys with us, and so there was us and, three pass- and many other passengers, three of us in, in the plane. And as we landed on the tarmac of Lusaka, I noticed airily, we started like kind of taxiing for a long time. It felt like if you were going to Oartambo, we'd landed in Pretoria and taxiing our way to Oartambo. But as we were kind of mosing our way through, I noticed on the tarmac, the army had gathered. And the last time I had a similar experience was when I was in Paris, when Strauss-Kahn, the WikiLeaks guy, was kind of making his way through the airport. They'd shut the thing down, about to arrest him. So as I saw the same scenes outside the airport of Lusaka, I thought to myself, no Yir come right? I thought sincerely that someone was in deep, deep trouble. I thought someone in here is either carrying grams and grams of cocaine, and I am going to be here just to witness all of this. So I pulled out my phone and started to video the army as they made their way into the plane. Unbehold to me, now at a close-up, I had a video of someone looking at me and saying, we are here to detain you, Mr. Mymane. I thought to myself, this must be an honest mistake. I said, sir, so you must explain to me, you know, when you are in trouble, you started making up laws. I'm on international ground, what are you talking about? He looked at me and he said, we have no reason to explain to you why you are being arrested. We've got orders from the top, you are being taken. I thought I was coming to a democratic country. I thought Zambia had held enough elections to at least know what constitutionality is and what the rule of law is. And literally, I pulled out my phone and started to phone the South African ambassador who was waiting for us on the other side, and she couldn't help us. Long story short, I'll never forget the day I had to make the phone call back to South Africa to say, I'm on the tarmac in Lusaka, and I ain't going nowhere. At the time of the drama, I didn't think I was in as much trouble until a guy who had met at Tumbo on the flight going in walked past me and said, listen, I run private prisons here. If they take you to one, ask them to take you to this one. <laughs> I thought, how does it happen that I came from just an ordinary passenger there to support the leader of the opposition or at least one of the presidential candidates in Zambia and now ending up? in a private prison with a person i just met on the day and i want to say that to you because it's always an introductory to how if you like fragile democracy is it's it's a way on which the story of africa is a story of countries that get liberated and it's only a matter of time as my kenyan brothers and sisters remind us that we must liberate ourselves from the liberators Last week, Wednesday, I boarded another flight to Lusaka. And as I was landing in Lusaka, I noticed the same taxi trip had become a little bit shorter this time. Can't land it, cruise to the front. But the same military presence had paraded the entire tarmac. And then as we parked and stopped, Three military officers came to the same plane. I thought again, I've seen this movie. He's <laughs> this time I'm a little bit more prepared. <laughs> they walked in, they said, We are looking for Mr. Maimani. He's on this flight. <laughs> I said to the lady, Tell my friends and family back home I love them lots. <laughs> Grabbed my bags. And suddenly, the same three generals were escorting me to a VIP area had given me a police escort to the inauguration of the new president of Zambia, a friend who had gone to support back in 2017, and now was being inaugurated president of Zambia. I find that story deeply inspiring, mainly because people never thought there'd be an alternative for Zambia. They never thought things could change, just like we do. You don't think that there's an alternative out there. But I want to tell you, actually, democracy survives on the back of change. Democracy requires us to sometimes not fear what would happen if the ANC was to lose power, but to rather be hopeful that we could build something new. And as I sat at that stadium listening to the speech of the president, I realized that young people had carried the hope for the nation of Zambia. And of the 17 million South Africans who are not voting, at least 75% of them are young people. And so for me, the hope of this country comes from the vibrancy of those young people. Those young people who are saying, this is a country we can build and we can bring change. Those young people who are saying, actually, we're not beholden to the past. We want to talk about our future. And it's to those young people we need to bet on, help find work, help educate, and build leaders that come from them. When we do that, We can broaden the talent of government so that we don't end up with a super presidency with every ministry underneath it, but rather a diversity of leaders that can take our nation forward. When we do that, we can ultimately know that politicians are not lords to themselves, but are really servants of the people. And when we all do that, we can know that the fight for 1994 wasn't a question of just building a one-party dominant state, but truly a democratic one where parties could lose power, new leaders can come forward, and actually, we could really celebrate that this continent, this country, can be able to lead in the next decade. That is the hope. That is the work we've got to do. But the work begins now. And I want to say this to you, change can occur. So thank you very much.
0: maybe you can just unpack it in a a nutshell what happened in Zambia because there you had the the ANC effectively getting voted out of power by a opposition leader who tried was it five times five elections yeah yeah and the president of Zambia initially said he's not leaving he says it was fixed but he left and he's gone, and you were at the inauguration. What an amazing story! Perhaps you can just share that briefly. From
4: yeah, your and and I think to me, one is Ed Galungu, the former president of Zambia, and I think he must be given credit for having conceded power eventually. But what was going on in Zambia? Clearly, I mean, they had a police state. My experience at the airport. Taught me a lot about democratic practice that had failed. In fact, when I went to go see HH at the time, he'd been locked up for simply not moving out the way of a presidential motorcade. Just, just say that again. He'd been locked up. He'd been in jail, and I was attending his preliminary trial, and literally, literally, because as the president's motorcade was behind them on a way to a rally, he wouldn't move, and they said, "You're going to jail." And I remember speaking to his wife on the phone and listening to a story about the fact that we we still don't know. They just arrived, they picked him up and put him in jail. So, young people of Zambia, and that's that's the thing for me that was beautiful to see. I mean, you'd swear COVID doesn't exist in Zambia. They had a super event. So, if anyone shakes my hand at the end of this, I have the Lusaka variant, if you like. (laughs) I've got many variants. but (laughs) But as I sat at that stadium, it was like... Thousands of young people who took it upon themselves to say, Bali, who they call him affectionately, who's Ichilema, we're going to vote for him, and, and they turned out on the day, despite police intimidation, voted, the elections were declared, and, and I think what I experienced at the stadium was Zambia's 94 moment. The line that I found unbelievable in the speech of the president on the day was he said, this is not a transfer of power, but it's people taking back their power. So I thought it was a very helpful device to tell people that if he doesn't do his job, they will have him removed also. So, so I, I find the Zambian story very inspiring, because to your point, this is post Kenneth Kaunda's country, this is post Edgar Lungu, the PFP, I think, is Lungu's party. Now we're down to uh, the UPND, which, is, which was founded... Literally, I think it's 2009 it was founded. So this is a fairly new organization. Five elections on, and HH took over the leadership. He is educated internationally. He's a businessman, so he has a centrist view on how things should work. And he's focused on restoring Zambia for the future. And I think it's a great development for that. But even not only starting there, the beautiful thing about it is that If you were following the same story in the 60s, you'd say it was Samora Machel, Kenneth Gaunda, and then you get to Robert Mugabe, and then South Africa were last. So the wave of change happens that way. So the Malawian election, the president there, Lazarus Chequera, also a good friend of mine, were part of a partnership of opposition leaders in the SADC region, has just won won that election after they tipped out ballot papers, etc. That went to court he then ran, had a rerun. He won. He's now the president there. Zambia's just had his change. I think, actually, if Zimbabwe didn't have the fairly awful elections they had recently, we could have seen change there, and I think that's what's next. And, so, and I think South Africa will follow likewise. So I'm, I'm much more optimistic electorally about this, this region more than ever before.
0: Well, it's a couple of years ago now. In fact, three years ago. That the public protector uh, made a decision to have a go at the horse racing industry, there were quite significant consequences of this. But in the past week, everything that the public protector had proposed has now been withdrawn. Rion Duplessis was the chief executive of Pumalela at the time of the attack from Busisiwe Mekwabani, the public protector, and I recall at the time, Rion, there was a lot of media coverage. Uh, of the uh, pretty damning allegations that she made.
10: Yes, Alec. Um, you know, the, the, uh, her uh, investigation resulted from a complaint lodged by a lady called Pindi Kemmer, who alleged uh, that a proper public-private process was not followed when the Gauteng MEC privatized horse racing in uh, Gauteng. Uh, and he, when he then transferred the Arlington race course to Pumalella without a, a, a public process. Now, the the sad part is, is uh, what's the likelihood of the Gauteng MEC or the Gauteng government owning any land in Port Elizabeth? I mean, that's how ridiculous the complaint was, and the fact that the public protector actually decided to take on the, uh, the the matter and investigate it just shows you
0: it, it was an extraordinary thing at the time it was however uh, it had a consequence in that a, a big chunk of Pumalila's revenue disappeared as a result of the remedial actions that the public protector proposed that's really tough if you're in business if uh, well, you know, it's too late now, to, or is it too late now to reverse it? But maybe take us through all of that. Uh, there's a 3% levy on horse racing bets with fixed odds, in other words, with bookmakers, which in the past used to go to Pumalela. But because of what the public protector said, that no longer went there. How did that all work out?
10: Yeah, um, it it happened after I had left Pumalela, Alec. Uh, but, yeah, she directed that the 3%. Uh, that uh, Pumalela got from uh, the Gauteng government uh, as a contribution towards the costs of running horse racing uh, needed to be stopped. And that cost Pumalela the best part of about 70, 80 million rand per year and pretty much hastened its demise. You say demise. Uh, It's still operating
0: today, but uh, it did go through some very difficult times. Business rescue, etc.
10: Well, it is in business rescue at the moment, and the business rescue practitioner um, is selling off uh, assets. Um, and uh, it it will then, if there is any money left, uh, it will be distributed to shareholders. The company will not continue. So, is there a direct link then? By what the public protector
0: investigated and proposed in 2019, going back to something that uh, that was, well, alleged to have happened all the way back in 1997. Is there any direct link between that and uh, the travails at Pumalila?
10: Well, um, the loss of about 80 million rand a year um, to, together with uh, continuing to have to fund the sport of horse racing uh, leads to one conclusion and that is that you won't be able to do it. So, It was a three-way agreement between the racing industry or the the racing clubs, the Gauteng government, and Pumalela that uh, resulted in the creation of Pumalela in 1997. And the unilateral withdrawal of the 3% without uh, a concomitant reduction in costs uh, leads to only one conclusion.
0: So what happens now? I know you're no longer the CEO, but you would have an intimate understanding of this industry and um, presumably uh, what the public protector was up to. Can it
10: now be be reversed? Can Pumalila get that money now? I don't know, Alec. One would hope so. One would hope that the uh, Gauteng government Uh, would now pay it back but um, that would be a matter for uh, Pumalela's business rescue practitioner to take up with the Gauteng government.
0: But it's surely given what came out uh, in the court or the settlement agreement where the public protector has now effectively said I I made a mistake I'll pay your legal costs uh, all of my remedies proposed remedies were wrong uh, would suggest that the damage that was done needs to be undone?
10: Well, that that would be the logical uh, conclusion, Alec, but we live in illogical times. Um, you know, uh, there's, there are very few governments that have money lying around spare, so I would suspect that the Gauteng government has, over the last three years, spent that money. Uh, and where they would find it to be able to give it back to Pumalela is a, is a matter for... Uh, Uh, For another day. Without that 70 to 80 million rand,
0: can Pumalela continue? I know you were, uh, I'm not sure if you still are, a significant
10: shareholder in the company. Alec, uh, no, not at the level of prize monies that uh, that, uh, the the company used to pay. Uh, Something has to give. Um, And uh, betting on horse racing is in decline. Um, it's less popular than other forms of gambling and your costs of running racing are on the up. So um, at, uh, unless something gives, uh, you, you, it, it would lead to the same conclusion.
0: Why is it necessary to have horse racing in South Africa?
10: Well, uh, I don't think it's necessary, uh, but it's useful. Um, you know, from a betting po- point of view... It's useful to have racing every day of the year, except Christmas Day, uh, because you've got betting shops that are open every day. Um, And although you can offer betting on uh, international product, it's by far and away less popular than local racing, which is uh, what punters understand better. So it it is a bit of a chicken and egg situation, you know, in the olden days when there was no betting in betting shops and most of the betting took place on course, well, you'd only offer betting when there was racing taking place, but you've now now got betting shops all over the country, both bookmaker and tote betting shops, and they pay rent 365 days a year, and you can't just have them betting uh, open for betting on Wednesdays and Saturdays and Sundays.
0: I guess there's also quite a few people who are employed by this industry.
10: Yes, quite a few.
0: Do you have a number? I, because it, it seems to go all over the place. The, there, were, there were some estimates that it, it was over 100,000
10: yes alec but that's uh, that's direct as well as indirect and and also upstream uh, on the farms uh, etc where the where the horses are bred and trained etc so but the estimate has been up to as much as one hundred thousand
0: so if we look at this all in perspective, here yeah, you have a government appointed official uh, and we know that there are, there's, there's a lot of uh, pressure to try and remove her or impeach her from that position, but able to Cause such destruction in an industry. From Now that you're out of it, I'm sure you can speak very independently and speak your mind on it. What, is, what do you make of all of this about doing business in South Africa, given that you have a long track record, uh, your time at RMB, the, 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 the time that you were running Comprex? You've been at the top of business in South Africa. You have a good understanding of the complexities of how this economy works. What do you make of all this?
10: It's bizarre. Um, I'm beyond words, uh, Alec. How uh, a public protector who's supposed to concern herself only with matters that relate to government employees and state-owned enterprises can interfere with a publicly listed, quoted company and uh, indirectly cause its demise is just bizarre. It's absolutely astounding.
0: You also drove Pumalela's globalisation or or developed the company in the international markets, what did your counterparties think of everything that was happening when this all came out?
10: Well, as I uh, must again say, that this directive was issued a couple of months after I left Pumalela. So um, I would have had indirect feedback from our international partners who were astounded as much as we were um it's just unbelievable Uh, south african racing is well respected internationally we produce good quality horses um, that have one gone on to win in the uk and dubai and hong kong and singapore and all over the place and um, to have this happen to a, a company without with no provocation And, you know, Pumalela had a sizable black shareholding. Um, We were officially rated just before I left as 56% black owned. Um, And uh, those shareholders have now all lost their money, which is astounding.
0: And what was behind it?
10: I don't know, Alec. Um, I don't know why she would have thought that it was appropriate for her to interfere in uh, a publicly listed company's affairs. Um, You know, she has a history, or the public protector has a history, uh, in having a go at APSA uh, uh, in respect of the Reserve Bank, where uh, the Office of the Public Protector was also um, disciplined and, and they lost the case. Uh, and here is yet another example uh, where uh, she just didn't understand her powers and, and what the limits thereof are.
0: Well, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's been a unusually interesting program once again uh, this Tuesday. We'll be back again with you, same time, same place, tomorrow. Till then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour podcast. Brought to you by the team at BizNews.